The Real is presented by the HBO drama Westworld. Time proclaims it's one of the biggest shows on earth. Live without limits in a world where every human appetite can be indulged. In this hit series, a group of android hosts deviate from their programmers' carefully planned scripts in a disturbing pattern of aberrant behavior. Chaos takes control in the second season of Westworld. For your consideration, nominated for 21 Emmys, including Outstanding Drama Series. Hi, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture meets entertainment. I write about movies here at The Times, and between movies and TV, a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues here on the entertainment staff at the paper is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. This week, I'll be joined by a few of my colleagues for two distinct but not entirely unrelated topics. First, we'll talk about the recent announcement that the Motion Picture Academy will be introducing some changes to the Oscars, the seemingly most radical being the implementation of a new award designed around the vague category of popular film. The response so far in the media and online hasn't been great, and we'll get into what the fuss is all about. Then we'll be recapping the movie summer that was, from mass appeal crowd pleasers to seemingly smaller scaled movies like 8th Grade and Sorry to Bother You. And then we'll hear a conversation between Times television reporter Yvonne Villarreal and the creators and show owners of GLOW, Liz Flayhive and Carly Minch. The show, about a 1980s women's wrestling television show in the San Fernando Valley, has become a real success, garnering acclaim for stars Alison Brie, Betty Gilpin, and Mark Marin, and mixing period-appropriate glitter and garishness with a deeply felt emotional core of women attempting to make something for themselves in a world dominated by petty men. Let's listen to the discussion. And so joining me today are some of my colleagues from the Film Desk. Uh, I have with me today Justin Chang, film critic. Amy Kaufman, staff writer in the film department. And I'm Jen Yamato, film reporter. And so last week we sort of touched on the recent changes that the Motion Picture Academy announced with regards to both this upcoming season's Oscars and also sort of the Oscars over the next couple of years. And I wanted to be sure that we sort of dug a little deeper into that to talk about it. And Justin, you actually published an essay about that. Why don't you maybe first of all just kind of like talk us through what the Academy's up to? What were some of the changes they announced? Yes, I'm going to try to see if I can summarize all of them um, because there was quite a lot in that release they sent out. But the biggest change was the addition of a best achievement in popular film category that would presumably honor uh, blockbusters, big audience hits. This was, of course, the change that also drew the most ire, I think, from industry observers, myself included, and a lot of a lot of us here as well. So. That's the biggest change. They're also moving the Oscars up to early February, I believe, starting in 2020. So that won't affect this year, but the next year. But what will affect this upcoming telecast is not only the addition of that new category, but also they're going to try to tighten the show into a three-hour They've said that they can do like an entertaining, uh, which is hilarious to me. The Oscars have never been entertaining for as long as I've been watching them. But um, a three-hour telecast. And to do this, though, and incorporating a whole, whole new category, they're going to air a lot of the categories. I assume technical below-the-line categories. They're not going to air those. They're just going to present them during commercial breaks, which I think is hugely disrespectful to the artists and craftspeople and technicians who make a lot of Incidentally, the most popular films. 
It's also disrespectful to the audience who, during the commercial breaks, that's our only chance to get up, go to the lobby, get a little snacky, a little drinky. All the movie stars like to do it, too. So don't, you know, fill the commercial breaks with with more content. Oh, so you're saying... During the actual show, I, and no one had really mentioned this. It's going to actually change the, the flow of the room. Yes, like no one's going to want to leave because it will be disrespectful, right? To leave during like a craftsperson getting an award, and it's weird. But let's kind of get into this achievement in popular film. I mean, that is the one that's drawn the most attention because it is, in fact, going to be a whole new category. A statue will be given that's never been given before. And, you know, I think for those of us who have to cover the Academy and sort of deal with the Academy, they're sort of famously unforthcoming on information. And so I think the fact that this was so vague is part of what has people so kind of freaked out and up in arms about it. I mean, Jen... How how would you interpret this award? Like, do you have some sense, even from just what you've been seeing from people's responses online, of what people think this award is going to be there to recognize? Well, every reaction I've seen online, especially that first day after the Academy just dropped this bomb and walked away, uh, is mostly ridicule because nobody wants the Oscars to shift towards some idea of popular and become like the Teen Choice Awards or the People's Choice Awards of the Academy. And frankly, they their, their refusal to announce it with some explanation of what popular even means in their definition, I think was a mistake. It's probably going to come down to some sort of box office performance metric. But what it has done already is given the assumption that this category is going to devalue the Oscar honor as the top honor of the industry by creating this division between something that performs well commercially and something that is deserving critically. Because I think the, the feeling is going to be that, that somehow there's an implication that somehow the movies that have been winning have not been popular. And that's so I, the thing I don't understand is there's especially given the fact that the Academy has made such an effort with regards to their membership. And this year they brought in almost a thousand new members. I feel like they're not trusting themselves and their own membership. They're not giving those people a chance to have an impact on the vote. Who's to say what would win just straight up best picture this year if those people were kind of given a chance to vote on it? Amy, what have been some of the things that you've seen online or what's kind of your feeling about what the, this this decision to 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 create this new category? I mean, I feel like it's not going to stick. Personally, there's been so much backlash um, immediately following the announcement. And it, it like it, it just seems like such an insult. Like, I don't see any other way of looking at it um, from the filmmaker perspective that I think the Academy, I mean, I know that they like to stick with decisions, but like... Well, and it it makes you wonder if that is why the wording was so vague, like as if they were sort of testing the waters and saying, hey, here's this probably horrible idea. And in the try it, let's try it in the court of public opinion, perhaps uh, before we get too specific. But then they haven't really clarified too much except to say, I think some Academy folks have kind of said, don't judge it too harshly and we'll wait and see. We have more details forthcoming. Also, the fact that a movie, I think, is eligible in both categories. So theoretically, a film like the movie that everyone has immediately been talking about is Black Panther. Black Panther is eligible for Best Picture, would be eligible for this popular film category. And I don't know if... The, then the sort of like real win is in if you win both or like if it splits, like it's, it's again, it's just creating more complications than it seems like they need. I mean, I think, you know, Mark Harris tweeted something about this, which was very smart and very cutting, I think, which is that it's ironic that in the year 
of Black Panther's enormous success, that the, this was the year the Academy chose to create this, cat, this extra category, something separate but equal. Also, like, I just don't get the idea that, you know, obviously a lot of people have been saying they're doing this as in response to the ratings um, falling so steeply for the telecast. And it's like, what person is like, well, I saw Black Panther and I saw Mamma Mia and those are nominated. So, like, now I'll watch the Oscars. I don't know. That just doesn't. Like, I, like I wouldn't so have many, watched the Oscars, right, but so now I will. There's so many celebrities there anyway, like huge A-list stars and other big movies. It's like, I don't think the, I mean, those people would be there anyway. It doesn't make sense. I feel like they've made such strides and they they need to have let this what they've been trying to create of a new academy follow through on that. Like, I mean, you see in just the last couple of years, Moonlight, you know, Justin, if you've said many times, that is not a typical Oscar picture. Even this year, The Shape of Water is, you know, you can debate its Oscar angularity, but I think they're just not trusting what they've already created. Absolutely. And I don't even know how much these recent Best Picture winners have been determined by that shift in the academy membership i mean i think you know i actually like to think that those would have happened anyways um and that we have yet to see what actual impact the more diverse more representative academy will what choices they will come to the most exciting thing to me about the way the academy has opened up its membership is that you're getting international filmmakers you, you know it's, it's celebrating cinema as a world you know as a global medium not just an american medium so i would you know what would I like to see? I would actually like to see a better best picture race with foreign language films represented, documentaries getting a shake, you know, and if you have to open <gasps> up best, I know Amy's excited. <laughs> Absolutely. And if, if you would even have to expand the best picture, I'm not advocating for this, but I think that that is to me what needs kind of more discernment and more elasticity. I don't think adding, you know, a popular film category to recognize films that are already recognized for their, you know, for their commercial value adds anything at all. Yeah, actually, I've been very curious with regards to just the sort of the definitions of the term of popular film and how the Academy will sort of determine the qualifications for that. Will things from the streaming platforms, I, I think about a movie we've talked about here before, set it up, that that's a movie where it certainly seems popular to me and lots of people like it and have talked about it, but it won't have the box office metrics right. that most things have because of the way Netflix operates. It'll be hard to say it's not a provable popularity in the way that they presumably are going to need. And I think obviously we're all going to be having to sort of take a wait and see approach for all we know by the time we even have, you know, put this podcast out to the world that the Academy may have released their, you know, definitions of terms, things. I mean, that's, I think also part of why this has been such an odd announcement is there's so much uncertainty in what they've done. And it's going to be happening so fast because we are heading very quickly into fall, very quickly into sort of like prestige and Oscar award season. I know. Yeah, and all these studios and distributors have to now start figuring out their Rehaul, best popular campaign. Right. Do they give for a timeline on when they're going to do the definition of what the award is? Because it does feel like the studio is going to be like, how would we promote these? A friend of mine suggested this on Facebook, and I actually think it makes sense. If they must have this, and I still think it's a horrible idea, make it an audience voted award, completely divorce it from any of what little prestige the Academy still has. You know, embrace the people's choiceness of it because then at least you're kind of acknowledging it's a joke and it's it doesn't, it, di- it dilutes the prestige of Best Picture a little bit less, which is what concerns me more than anything else. They would else. never do that. Probably not. But now, before we sort of pivot into the fall and, you know, festival films, prestige movies, awards movies, 
I think it's maybe a good moment for us to take a little pause, look back on the summer, think about what we've been doing. So we, I kind of wanted to touch base with all of you about what some of your favorite movies from the summer have been and how this kind of was. Justin, from your perspective, was this a good sort of summer movie, movie season? Like how, how, how was this summer at the movies? I think it was decent. And it's funny, my, my conception of summer feels like blurrier every year it seems like because I think I remember I feel like this has been actually a pretty strong first half of the year overall and I can't exactly remember where things fall on the release calendar but I think that it's been you know a really terrific year maybe not as much for the studio films um, although there have been some some good ones but I I like you know as, as usual as any time of the year I liked a lot of the smaller films that have come out uh, things like eighth grade which I want we'll let Amy talk about since I know it's one of her favorites as well Amy, why don't you tell us a little bit about eighth grade? Eighth grade. Eighth grade will give you the feels, man. It is um, Bo Burnham's directorial debut. Um, He always gets referred to as the guy who started on YouTube, the comedian, the YouTube comedian. But now in his 20s, he has written this really emotional, awkward, heartwarming drama about a shocker, eighth grader, who is struggling to fit in in school. And so she uses YouTube as an outlet to try to gain confidence and also popularity, maybe. And it did really well in limited release, so well that that it's expanded to, like, I think over a thousand theaters. And they did this little ploy where they had eighth graders actually get to go see it because they had an unrated day. It's It's rated R, even though it has very limited bad language. Unrated day. Yeah, I don't know if it's called that, but I'm calling it. But yeah, it's good. And I took a bunch of eighth graders to see it for a story, and it was Gucci as as the character in the <laughs> film would say. It was wild. And Justin, you're a fan of that movie I as well? I'm a huge fan of it too. And it's funny because this movie played, like a lot of movies that have opened this first half of the year already at Sundance, and I didn't see it there. I actually feel like the reaction was maybe, not muted, I think people liked it there, but it's really of what was widely considered kind of a weaker Sundance maybe, maybe unfairly so, this movie really has kind of run away as one of the, you know, as one, you know, um, been kind of a runaway hit. And I just think it's so, you know, Bo Burnham, I mean, you know, we sometimes say like how, you know, how, you know, not based on his YouTube work and based on lots of other things, you wouldn't necessarily expect him to have so much sensitivity and empathy to this character. It's also just, I think, one of the great performances by an act, a, an actor and certainly a young actor this year by Elsie Fisher um, as Kayla. So, yeah, I think it's it really terrific. It is pretty terrific. wild to see how, from what was, you know, thought of as a, a weak Sundance yeah. that, you know, RBG, Won't You Be My Neighbor, Three Identical Strangers, then also Eighth Grade, Hereditary. Sorry to bother you. Sorry to bother you. There's been a lot of movies that have done very well at the box office coming out of Sundance this year, even for what was determined at that time a a kind of a weak year. Haters gonna hate. Three of those uh, Sundance movies that you just named are three of my favorite summer movies. One is Hereditary. Uh, Sorry to Bother You is a film that I'm really glad exists and really glad that it came out so strong in theaters. Um, I love that Boots Riley, who's his first-time feature writer-director, is also so engaged with the conversation around that movie. It's really, I think he's been more engaging as a filmmaker with his audience this year or in recent years than any other filmmaker I can remember. And I don't think we've actually talked about Sorry to Bother You before. Uh, Justin, I know you're a fan of that movie as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about what, what it is you like about it? Yeah, absolutely. And this is one that I saw at Sundance and liked at Sundance, but seeing it again, with, and this is why I think as much as I love Sundance, you know, the the haze around it, sometimes it's better just to see these movies in isolation. And I think this, just the sheer kind of 
invention and just the satirical angle and also and yet in some ways it's not satire it actually feels like a more of a, a realistic snapshot of just the crazy dystopic times that we live in you know uh lakeith stanfield just gives a terrific performance the mighty tessa this, thompson and tessa thompson you know as these um you know and, and lakeith stanfield plays this you know, this Oakland kind of drifter stoner type who gets a job and kind of ascends up the corporate ladder at this from this telemarketing firm. And just, I'm still, I mean, this is a movie that does kind of defy description in some ways, but it does so many things. Well, it's so genuinely, are, yeah, it's so genuinely rare to be able to say, you really have never seen a movie quite like this before. And I think this is a, a, an true. example where the, in the audacity of the storytelling, the way that it's structured, the way the movie kind of reinvents itself as it goes along, like really, as you were saying, John, I mean, Boots Riley, uh, sort of known as a, a musician for many years with his group, The Coup, and now, you know, making this very bold foray into writing and directing as a, as a filmmaker. It's just really exciting to see. Um, and then blind spotting, yes. in my mind, is a, a, a great, interesting, very different, in many ways, twin film with Sorry to Bother You. It's also set in Oakland, also an indie that has a lot on its mind. And that's a movie that I, I think is really, really good and worth seeing about two best friends, one black and one white, living in Oakland, navigating these really complicated sort of social and racial shifting boundaries within the city. Absolutely. Um, and I had just read this terrific piece by uh, Austin Collins, Cameron Austin Collins in a Vanity Fair pointing out that both Black Klansmen and Sorry to Bother You use this device of white voice in a really interesting way. And so, I mean, this is such an exciting year, I think, for cinema that takes on racial conflict and racial issues and the, in, in, in much more sophisticated ways than the usual just kind of inspirational uplift that we sometimes see in movies. Like these are really kind of very confrontational, very funny movies. I mean, Black Klansman is absolutely hilarious when it's not blood boiling and infuriating. So um, that w- that's very, very cool to see. And I don't know, Black, it, we'll see. I mean, it, this movie, you know, um, won the second Grand Prix, the Grand Prix, the second prize at the Cannes Film Festival, which is not an easy thing necessarily for an American film to do. And so that kind of does put that on the map. Is this, from this first half of the year, that does almost look like the awards contender going into this, you know, glut of films that we're about to get in the fall. And I think this is certainly something we're going to be talking about as the sort of the year and the the award season moves forward. And so I want to thank my colleagues for joining me today. And uh, so tell people where they can find you online. You can find me, Jen Yamato, online at at Jen Yamato. Uh, Amy Kay, you can find me at Amy Kay in L.A. I'm Justin Chang. You can find me at Justin C. Chang. And I want to thank you, Mark Olson, for being yes. such an amazing host, as always. What a super trooper. And so I'm Mark Olson. You can find me on Twitter at IndieFocus. And now we're going to take a short break. The Real is presented by the HBO film The Tale. Deadline confirms it's a powerful movie that demands attention. In this film, a woman must face a host of life-altering questions after a short story from her middle school days forces her to re-examine her first sexual relationship. For your Emmy consideration, nominated for Outstanding Television Movie and Outstanding Lead Actress. And now we're back with Yvonne Villarreal's interview with Liz Flayhive and Carly Mensch, the creative forces behind GLOW. They talk about using the past to explore the ways in which the female experience has and has not changed, and their plans for season three if Netflix renews the comedy. Let's listen in. 
Hi, I'm Yvonne Villarreal with the Los Angeles Times. I'm here today with Liz Flahav and Carly Mensch, the co-creators of Glow on Netflix. The show landed 10 nominations this year at the Emmys, including Best Comedy. 10 nominations. It's, I mean, I like that number. People can keep, you can keep saying it. It's great. It sounds so nice. We're proud of every one of those 10. Yeah. How was that morning? That morning was really... I mean, we were really back in our normal and the most normal version of our lives. Like my son was upset that he was late for camp. We were trying to put sunscreen on both of them. You were out on that walk. Yeah. And so I was just trying to figure out how to stream the nominations, which like between the kids and camp was just a total nightmare. Um, And then I finally got it and saw what was happening. And I FaceTimed Carly and, and then, I had yeah. no clue what was happening and was confused why there were all these texts. And then Liz cleared it up. And then I still had to go on a walk with my one-year-old because he doesn't <laughs> care or know <laughs> about things like this. So the morning continued as normal. But then Liz and I went out for ice cream, which is one of the only times we've celebrated since getting the show. So I yeah. feel like we took our 20 minutes of celebration. Yeah, it was great. Well, let's talk about how you got here before we talk more about the show. I mean, you guys started out as playwrights talk Mm -hmm. about how you came to know each other and then the jump to tv why you decided to make that jump sure i mean well carly and i met 10 years ago now at this writers group that was run by this theater this off-broadway theater called ars nova and it was just a really special place a lot of um it was the first year they had done a writers group and it was a lot of up-and-coming writers and we would all get together and eat pizza and drink beer and read plays And a bunch of writers actually in our writer's room are from that time as well. So it was just a really special sort of foundational place where you felt safe to bring work and you felt like you had a community. And I think we've held on to that community as we've moved through working in theater and moving to TV. I know you guys were sort of uh, hungry to tell more stories about yeah. women and you, I think it was you that has the obsession with documentaries Yeah, and Liz had just had a child. So talk you about do. how it all sort of came together. I mean, we've talked about this before too, but Liz and I were very different, you know, separate writers for most of our career. Liz unearthed Jackie for every season of that show I wandered a bit more. I was on Weeds. I was on Orange is the New Black. I joined Liz when she was finally able to hire some people. I got to go there. But there was never really a long-term plan of working together until we sat in a writer's room together and then just kind of noticed each other's approach to storytelling. You know, we had been friends for 10 years, but, you know, we also have other friends that we've known for 10 years that we don't want to work with. I think there was something about kind of... There was a like-mindedness. There was a... We're both... (laughs) You know, workaholics, we are people who kind of come in early, stay late, give it our all. I think we have similar approach to kind of what makes the story. I think we... I think energetically we're kind of similar. I mean, I just think there's something about, you know, getting into a situation where you co-create something and you co-show run. Like we've said it before, like it is a marriage. It's very, very intense. And I think we have a lot of fun. We have a lot of trust. We rely on each other. In, you know, mostly in healthy ways. I feel like it is, you know, it's just a very, it's a, it's a big decision to make. And I don't think we walked into it fully understanding that, but I think we knew um, that we would both really show up both for the project and for each other. And I feel like that's one of the biggest things about collaborating, you know, are we going to meet each other more than halfway all the time? 
Well, and I mean, this is a show that's obviously set in the 80s, very much a time pre the Me Too era, but obviously the politics, you know, play a crucial role of like the mindset of that time. Talk about navigating that in the current climate and also like how would you describe the limits that presented in terms of writing, like the limits of the period? I mean, I think we're sort of, you know, we're writing about the 80s, but with, you know, very modern brains. And I think we, you know, I think we watch that balance really carefully. I think we're telling, we're trying to pay a lot of attention to what would realistically happen in the period, because we're telling a story of a show, you know, our, our fictional glow is being made by, you know, a male director and a male producer. Um, now, with season two, a female producer as well. But, you know, I think that's a big part of our storytelling. And I think in terms of looking at that and looking how at how we make the show, you know, I think that the thing that's really great about our show is that it's the majority of the writers are women. The majority of the producers are women. The majority of our directors are women. We have a, we have a lot of women on our crew. We obviously have a lot of women in our cast. Um, that wouldn't have been possible in 1986. Yeah. And you just... I think that is one of the things that I think all we, we, we all think about because our show is so meta, we're telling these stories. And then you just have this sort of constant feedback loop of what we're experiencing making the show, what we're looking at, you know, in terms of the politics of 85, 86. And I think the other thing that's really true, and Ali and Betty have talked about this um, recently, but that, you know, as much as we're seeing a lot of change, I think there are many places in the industry where it has not like it has not changed as much as you'd like. You know, I still think that when you have, you know, I think the opportunities for women are different, especially in features. I think that I just I think there's still things to break down. There's still there's still things that aren't ideal about being, you know, a woman working in this industry. Well, I mean, that sort of plays, I mean, I know this was a season two episode, but what happened with the sort of Weinstein-esque episode, I think it was born out of hearing conversations and obviously what Ruth would have experienced, but hearing conversations in the room with the writers, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The writer's room is a safe place where we kind of, you know, the stories that are said there remain there, but I think we're comfortable saying that, you know, with a room of five women, six women... Yes, stories are being passed back and forth that were for sure way worse than what, what made it into the episode. And it felt like that was just kind of part of the, that's part of the experience of being a woman in the industry even up until now. So I, that felt like an easy. There's also a lot of, I think part of our, our intentions with that story was to show how easily a woman could walk into this. You know, I think there's a lot of judgment out there. You know, of I'd how I'd never be in that situation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I would have loved. Yeah, I would have never yeah. been in that situation. Yeah. I never would have dressed like that. I never yeah. would have. Um, and I think to kind of call bullshit on that and to kind of show how slippery these situations are. And you know, we're writing a story about women who want to work, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to work. And just sometimes these are the things that kind of fall on your lap when that is your intention, and the power structure is not in your favor. So I think that's another like part of the change too. Is like. This is there are subtleties to this conversation. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of men who are not monsters. There are a lot of there are a lot of times that you hear a story and it's like these are very tricky to navigate um, in real life. 
Well, on a final note, I think it was today that LA Comic Con announced that in cooperation with Women of Wrestling, owner Jeannie Buss and founder David McLean, mm-hmm. they're doing back-to-back Women of Wrestling events to be broadcast next year. And I just feel like there needs to be cross-promotion here. Like, there has to be a way. Bring it on. We yeah. are, you know, we want more women's wrestling out there. They obviously have, especially David, have been in this business a long time, and we admire them all. So the more the merrier. Yeah, we're into Call it. Call us up. We're around. <laughs> Netflix legal, figure it out. <laughs> Give us some tickets. We'll all come. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, I think the fact that, you know, and we told this sort of story on the show, but I think for a long time, women's wrestling was, you know, still a little bit more a sideshow or was the, you know, was the popcorn match or, you know, and I think there are so many women who have been wrestling for so long. And I think the idea of them being given their due is, is totally right on and deserved. So what can we expect with the women of glow at the Emmy awards? Like, it's just going to be like amazing. All of them there. I mean, they're going to, will they, will they all be there? Question. Yeah. <laughs> they're all, I mean, I think you can, you, they'll be loud. They'll be themselves. I think that's the other thing. Like they are themselves. They're themselves. Yeah. It's, it's really nice. And they travel as a team, which is so yeah. sweet. And again, meta and, yeah. you know, we're, we have no cool, like we're yeah. all very excited to yeah. be there. We're not going to, yeah. we're not going to pretend like yeah, that we we're just, completely over we bo- it. We think we belong there. <laughs> We're going to be the girls who are pumped to be at the party. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Sure, thank you. It was great talking to you. You too.